Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial. Now, we hope you are staying safe and are healthy wherever you are, and we look forward to seeing you again in person one day when it's safe at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is the latest in more than 400 online programs the club has produced during the pandemic. Again, you can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as podcasts and video from past events at commonwealthclub.org. We're glad you're joining us for today's important program. Today's program was made possible by the generous support of Gilead Sciences. Thank you very much. And thanks also to Kaiser Permanente for its support of independent LGBTQ media producers. Now I want to introduce Michelle Miao. She's the producer and the host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for providing the platform and space for us to have these very important conversations. I'm very pleased and honored to introduce you to our speakers today. We have Nikki Fortunato Bass, who is the president of the Oakland City Council. We have Dr. Russell Jung, who is a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University, also author of Family Sacrifices, The Worldviews and Ethics of Chinese Americans. And finally, we have Michelle Kim, who is the CEO of Awaken and also the author of The Wake Up, Closing the Gap Between Good Intentions and Real Change. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us for this very important conversation. I think a good place to start is a, a better understanding of the recent data. You know, last year back in March, Stop AAPI Hate had started collecting, <clears throat> excuse me, reports of hate incidents. And at the time, there was just a little over 600 known incidents reported. But by the end of the year, December of 2020, that number had quadrupled to about 2,800 and counting. And I'm sure of it that we're over that number. But let's start with Dr. Jung, or I'm sorry, Professor Jung. Russell, I'll call you everything that you are. <laughs> Russell, let, uh, you know, let's better understand this data and what it actually means. Although the numbers can give us a little bit of panic, it, it feels like it's an alarming rise or an increase. What it, it doesn't you know, suggest that is that this is all new. Um, you know, this has happened before. Right. Thanks, Michelle, for having us. And um, it's a horrific trend. And there has been a surge of racism against Asians in the last year. We began tracking personal um, accounts of racism starting just about a year ago. And immediately we were flooded with hundreds of incidents. And there again, they were horrific. They're traumatizing accounts of people being coughed and spat upon, of having racial slurs and profanity slung at them. What we found is that um, disproportionately vulnerable populations or those whom people think are vulnerable are attacked. So elderly and children are disproportionately represented in our numbers. And you don't think of Asian American seniors going online and complaining, but they are. And women are harassed 2.3 times more than men. This is a national um, phenomenon. We have all 50 states reporting. It's widespread. It's pervasive. And um, it's been institutionalized in national policies, this anti-Asian um, outsider racialization that were perceived as foreigners to be excluded. So um, surprisingly, this trend has gone on this year, and it just shows the deep roots of racism against Asian Americans. This is more of a, a, an opportunity, or this question is more of an opportunity for us to share our lived experiences here, and it's a question for all our speakers uh, but also share, you know, the nuances of what anti-Asian racism or, or these incidents of violence um, mean. But why do you think this is happening? We'll start with Michelle. Oh, I think um, there's a lot of reasons that we can talk about in terms of the 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 up uh, the increase in these incidents. And I think what uh, Russell alluded to is that this kind of violence is not new. Right. And that we see a historical um, policies as well as the racism that is embedded in our history that is targeting Asian people in this country. 
And uh, I think that when we look at the history of this country, when it comes to crisis, moments of economic hardship, when it comes to terrorist attacks, there have always been some type of scapegoat and some type of uh, marginalized community that's targeted in order to pin that crisis on. So when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic, I think the easiest target because of the racist rhetoric that the previous government um, administration spewed, um, I think Asian people in this country were the easiest target for that. And I think at the same time, there is this lack of safety net that's been created as a condition of this pandemic and the scarcity that every community is experiencing right now that is heightening the crimes that are happening everywhere, right? So I think there are um, different types of traumas that are, hap that are happening and the fact that Asian uh, racism and anti-Asian racism and violence is not something new. I think all of these things converging at this moment um, begs us to really unpack the nuance of all of this and to not try to simplify this to being, um, you know, for example, I think a lot of people are faulting one person, right? Um, the, the previous president for saying um, China virus or Kung flu vi vi uh, virus and that being the problem that we need to eliminate and solve. And then all of a sudden anti-Asian racism is going to go away. That's not going to happen. Right. So I think we need to look at all these different factors and uh, unpack with thoughtfulness of what is happening and the addressing of not just interpersonal violence that's happening, but also systemic violence at large. Council member. Yes, just to build off of what uh, Michelle said, which I thought was excellent. Um, you know, the roots of anti-Asian racism run really deep. And uh, Michelle, you had asked to also share personally um, how this manifests. I mean, I, I grew up in Virginia, of all places, Northern Virginia, at a time when there were very, very few immigrants. And so um, my family are immigrants from the Philippines. And I remember it being in grade school and getting called Jap or Chink. And it was incredibly mean and uninformed. And I was also like, wait a minute, I'm Filipino. I'm not Japanese or Chinese. And so there, there, there's so much history and in, in diversity um, among the API community. We are so incredibly diverse. And I think there's a lack of understanding of our diversity. There's a lack of understanding of our history and the real history of violence against our communities from the Chinese Exclusion Act to the um, racism against Filipino farm workers, to the internment of the Japanese American community. And um, we somehow shifted from being the yellow peril to this model minority. And I think there's also something there in terms of um, the API community. And I think, you know, as a woman, I, I really feel this plays out of um, kind of being uh, silenced um, you know, think as, as the so-called model minority, people think that we are willing uh, to not speak up. But in fact, what these what this rise in hate crimes has shown is that our community is diverse. We have experienced systemic racism and violence. And this is a moment, I think, where the API community is saying, we want to share our history. We want to tell our story. We want to share who I am. We also want to heal from the trauma that we've experienced. Um, all of that, I think, is positive in terms of us healing and um, sharing who we are as a as a community, as well as being able to build more multi multiracial solidarity. And Russell, um, the question about um, how we've personally experienced it and um, the causes. <clears throat> My family have been in the U.S. for five generations, and in the 19th century, during the Chinese Exclusion Act, Chinese were deemed unassimilable pagans, and they were blamed for three diseases, cholera, leprosy, and smallpox. Um, because we were seen as also taking away white workers' jobs, there was heightened anti-Chinese violence, and over 300 Chinese settlements were driven out. My family's um, fishing village in Monterey was burned down. Over 200 residents um, had to leave and were evicted. And then they passed Chinese Exclusion Act. So again, because of epidemic, we faced interpersonal violence and racist policies. Flash forward 115 years, um, we're seeing this violence. And my mom 
lives in San Francisco in the neighborhood where Bisha Ratna um, Paki, the Thai American who was pushed and killed, we live in that neighborhood. My best friends grew up on that block. And I asked my mom, you know, just two years ago, pre-pandemic, she would walk everywhere in San Francisco as a 92-year-old. And I asked her now, what would you do? And she said, oh, I'd only walk on Clement Street, right, the Chinese neighborhood. And, you know, history is repeating itself, the violence, the racist policies, and the personal impacts on our family. And so um, I do blame President Trump's racist rhetoric. I think his hate speech went viral and it became invited people to hate violence. And it's just normalized the racism that people feel free to attack foreigners, feel free to exclude others, and to, you know, again, shamelessly push and shove people. So the hit homes really closely. I do blame President Trump and that rhetoric. Um, I think social media has really exacerbated the situation as, as, you know, that type of hate speech goes viral. So there are a lot of factors contributing to what's happening. But again, like the others have said, it's historic. The violence has always been there. It's institutionalized in policies. And um, like Nikki said, we really do need healing from this racial trauma. It's a great segue to the next question, and it is for Nikki. And it's a two-part question. So speaking of leadership, uh, you know, the, the president has issued a national response, a, memoran- a memorandum co- uh, condemning the racism and the violence, the anti-Asian racism and violence, as well as putting out a plan to combat, even working with the Secretary of Health and Human Services and a COVID-19 task force to address some of these issues. Do we have something like that, a memorandum here, you know, locally? And the second part to that question is your feelings of uh, local elected leadership and their, their response to what's happening. How do you feel about it? So um, last, last year during um, Asian American History Month, uh, myself and Council Member Tao, uh, who was the first Hmong American to be elected to a city council, she and I sponsored a resolution not only commem- commemorating that month, but condemning anti-Asian uh, hate and violence, knowing that, uh, you know, at the start of last year when the pand- pandemic was was just starting, uh, there had been so much um, anti-Asian um, hate and rhetoric that was harmful. Um, so we did take action to condemn hate and violence a year ago. Um, you know, I think that myself and, and other council members have condemned uh, the violence that we've seen against Asians in Chinatown and other parts of Oakland, um, in particular against elders who are incredibly vulnerable. Um, it's not acceptable at all. And I do think it's important to um, condemn anti-Asian hate and violence and work against that and also recognize the broader systemic issues of racism and uh, the scarcity that uh, Michelle Kim mentioned. You know, we as uh, people of color, um, our histories in terms of getting here um, are our histories um of enslavement, um, of coming here out of economic necessity, and for indigenous people, um, there's the history of genocide. And all of that means there are systems of oppression around how people of color have, have been living and experiencing our own realities here that I believe is at the root causes of what causes violence, of what causes poverty. So I really think it's important to both condemn anti-Asian hate and violence, to name it when we see it, to take action to stop it, and to also recognize there's a larger um, structure of systemic racism that exists in our country that that perpetuates poverty, that has systemically been dismantling our safety net, and that has caused many, many people um, to live in insecurity. Um, And it is uh, the failure of our society that some of the perpetrators of crime um, have not been able to get mental health resources or, or, or housing or jobs or other resources. And that's to say that some of the acts of violence have not yet been um, determined to be anti-Asian versus crimes of opportunity. And I think those two things are important to recognize because if we call 
if we call something a hate crime and it isn't actually a hate crime, that's where anti-Blackness comes into play. And that's what I've really been trying to speak out about in terms of Black Asian solidarity. So I think we have to be careful that um, we're not blanketing the Black community because some of the perpetrators of these crimes have been Black. We have to really understand, was it anti-Asian racism and hate, or was it the failure of our safety net to address mental health crisis or other crisis? Anyone, anyone want to add to Nikki's comments? Yeah, I thank you so much for bringing all that context and nuance. And I think it's you know, I like to think that there are also some overlaps in terms of the scarcity that's been created and the crimes of opportunity, as people call it, and the presence of the perpetual um, and ongoing um, upholding of the model minority myth and how that has squarely put a target on our community's backs. That when we subscribe to the notion of model minority plus the perpetual foreigner um, rhetoric, and people automatically assume that when there is scarcity, the people to take away from is people who have um, wealth, people who have succeeded. And so I do think that there are, you know, these these overlapping areas where when somebody is targeted, um, that they're that it's impossible almost to take away their identities and the context that they are living in, the positionality and how people are perceived as easy targets or people who are carrying money or cash or people who have more than us. And I think these stereotypes are also part of that white supremacy construct that I think we need to, you know, be vigilant in um, unpacking and naming. Yeah, I, you know, I totally agree with um, Michelle. Um, there are stereotypes that are operating. Um, and we also, like Nikki said, need to distinguish between these two trends. First was the hate that was unleashed last year because of the pandemic and the political rhetoric. And then the crimes we're seeing this year, which are violent and horrific. They're related, but they are distinct. And so we can't call everything this year a hate crime. And um, again, because as um, council member boss talked about it, it stokes racial animosity and it misdiagnoses the problem by blaming Asian black relations as the problem rather than looking at the systemic poverty and injustices, which is really, and white supremacy as the primary problem for misdiagnosing and then not coming up with the proper policy prescriptions. I think another key root of the, the problem is again, the perpetual foreigner stereotype and Michelle referred to the model minority stereotype and they're like two sides of the same coin. But as perpetual foreigners, people see us as outsiders and are attacking us because we don't belong. That's the whole notion of Christian nationalism, that America should be a white Christian nation. And because Asians are neither white nor black, because we're not often Christian, we don't belong and therefore can be attacked. I think communities of color also adopt Christian nationalism. I think Asians who vote for Trump adopt Christian nationalism. And and so part of the problem is that... um, when people see us as outsiders moving into a neighborhood that has scarce resources, we become the economic competitors to them and they attack us, right? Um, I don't think anybody's attacking us because they think, oh, they're too smart. They're the model minority. People are attacking us because they think, oh, they're outsiders who don't belong. And so for me, for the Asian American community, we have to really recognize sometimes it's okay to be a model minority because it's a positive stereotype. And Asians who speak English and are educated, they experience that stereotype. But immigrants probably experience the perpetual foreigner stereotype a lot more because they may be made fun of because of their language, because they may not dress correctly at school, because they may eat the wrong foods. So for me, this perpetual foreigner stereotype is really operative. It's much more insidious at this moment, and it's killing us. And um, so um, I think... For Asians to really adopt that and really claim this, oh, this is the way we're being impacted. This is the way we're being seen. It actually helps us understand our immigrant parents and grandparents a little bit more, their experience of hardship, you know? And then it also connects us to other communities who are similarly racially profiled, you know, those who are mass detained, those who are mass incarcerated. So, you know, at this moment of racial reckoning, I want Asian Americans to say, yeah, you know, you want to be the model minority sometimes, but really you're being perceived as outsiders. 
and then feel that because that develops empathy with the others. That is your source of solidarity with others. And um, then we can also reimagine America as a different kind of place, right? A different nation that actually embraces and includes people rather than separates people from inside or outside or white or black. You all bring up very, very important uh, points. I mean, there's there's one aspect of it where we need to be talking about it, but how we're talking about it, especially now that there are more reports, can also lead to some of the problems that exist um, systemically. And so, you know, Russell, you had brought up um, the prescription to this. So let's let's go there with the with more reporting, which is good. Um, there comes this narrative and this focus on carceral solutions. And I think that that leads us into a trap. And so I wanted to uh, start with Council President Bass and, you know, this, this super hyper focus on carceral solutions being the first step, the, one of the only things that we can do to alleviate, you know, the violence that we're facing. Uh, I, think it, I think it's dangerous. It's, it's a dangerous narrative. What are your thoughts? I agree. I agree. Um, I, I do think that, you know, when, when I look around living in in the Bay Area, I mean, we live in one of the wealthiest regions in the entire world. And, you know, the issue is that we're not sharing that wealth. Um, I also think the issue that Russell mentioned about belonging is incredibly important. You know, for us to have roots in our communities, to feel safe in our communities, we all need a sense of belonging and community. And for me, safety really starts by envisioning what is the community of belonging um, that we can create together. And so in Chinatown, uh, which I represent, I I represent um, a district that includes Oakland Chinatown, you know, as I've talked with uh, seniors and young people and business owners about safety, safety is a vibrant Chinatown. You know, people are walking, they're shopping, they're going out to dinner, they're going to the parks and the rec centers, the streets are clean. If you have a question, you can ask someone for help. And so I think starting with that, um, you know, is is a much more joyful place to start because it's really helping to make sure that people's basic needs are met. We're not just surviving, but we actually have a good life and have the ability to thrive. We know our neighbors. Um, we know that the systems are working for us. And so, um, you know, I think if we start with that premise, then we recognize we can feel, we can meet people's basic needs. And law enforcement becomes an issue of how do we address the most violent, the most serious crime, which does exist, which is very dangerous. Um, But we can start more with how do we build community and meet people's needs. And that's really what some of the work I'm doing to reimagine safety is about. Um, You know, when these spikes in uh, crime were happening around Lunar New Year here in Chinatown, um, there was an immediate response from um, an existing coalition of Chinatown organizations to stroll our neighborhoods. Um, You know, let's do neighborhood strolls and let people know we're here. We're going to escort seniors to their appointments and show people that our neighborhood is is safe. And it also pointed to, um, you know, our, our community ambassador program, which has existed for a number of years, which we want to expand. You know, how do we take community members who are already part of our community who have relationships, employ them as a job strategy and have them be safety ambassadors. So if you need a walk to the grocery store or an appointment, if you have a question, if you want to report uh, trash or illegal dumping or a business needs help cleaning up graffiti, there's somebody that you can go to. And the response in Chinatown has really been about, you know, let's Let's have more eyes and ears on the streets. Let's build community, which we haven't been able to do in shelter in place, right? But let's start doing that and have an intention as more of us get the vaccine so that safety really starts with us. And I think that's important because incarceration, as we know, um, has really been harming a lot of communities of color. It's very expensive. And as um, as that policing in carceral state has grown, that has directly shrunk our safety net in terms of jobs and housing and education and healthcare. 
Um, and so we need to build back up that safety net by reinvesting in, in our communities. Russell or Michelle, anything to add to Nikki's comments? Um, I think, yeah, again, I think it's correct. Right now, Asian Americans feel like they're under a, a state of siege and we want feelings of safety. And um, I've got this great metaphor, or I think I got this great metaphor, where the way others are reacting to us is they see Asians as a threat, so they go into a flight or fight mode. They're fighting us and attacking us, or they're fleeing, they're actively shunning us. And now as Asian Americans feel threatened because we see all this graphic footage on video, we also do the same thing. We go into fight mode and we think we need more patrols, we need to arm ourselves, we need more surveillance or we go into flight or freeze mode, which is we'll just withdraw, we'll stay in. I know all my students are telling their parents and elderly grandparents, stay inside. Parents are telling their kids, oh, we're not sending you back to school because you may get the pandemic and share it with their grandparents or you may face racist bullying. But there's another response between fight or flight that I think um, Nikki's talking about, it's flock mode. And that's what I see Asian Americans doing. And this is what's actually, despite all the darkness and all the horror um, and the set of threat of siege, is that people are flocking together and going back to Chinatown to support it. And so I was in Chinatown the last two, Oakland Chinatown the last two weekends. There are a lot of young people out there eating, shopping, and then watching out for our seniors. And that's rather than um, having patrols and surveillance, which makes you more fearful like Nikki said, having people out walking about is a more welcoming atmosphere. It's a more safe atmosphere. The community ambassadors really add to that. And so I think um, I really like that flocking approach to developing safety and addressing the fears that we have. I really love that imagery. And I think it's really important for us to also um you know, continue amplifying these stories, right, that uh, you all are bringing up. And I think the work that local organizers have been doing here have truly been remarkable in bringing solidarity, not just within the Asian community, but across multiple different marginalized communities, right? So here, you know, in Oakland, I've seen Oakland Chinatown Coalition also teaming up with other coalitionary organizations and the anti-police terror project or, you know, movement for black lives have uh, released a statement condemning anti-Asian hate. And I think these um, examples of cross-community solidarity is so important in emboldening us and also imagining different solutions to what we've been taught as the only way of getting justice and accountability through the carceral state, through the, the state uh, policing. And I think what's um, also important for us to notice is while there are some calls for additional um, measures of surveillance and, and calls for police, that those calls for actually also being met and welcomed by the police um, institution, that there are actually additional surveillance that's happening and that are being enacted. There are additional task forces that are being given budget to um, uh, further embolden and further you know, their, um, uh, their, their methods and approaches to um, policing different communities and especially communities of color. And in these moments, I think for our community to also understand that that additional policing isn't what's going to keep us safe, that there are within the Asian diaspora of people who are going to be impacted negatively because of the increased state uh, presence of police, right? So folks who are undocumented, my dad was undocumented for over a decade and we never felt safe in the presence of the police, right? And uh, in terms of LGBTQ people and darker skinned Asian people being targeted, there are so many people within our community who will not feel safe within the presence of the police. So I just want us to continue to reimagine what accountability looks like, what safety looks like, and also keep, keep amplifying the examples that are already happening, that we are getting so much support and solidarity across community that I think historically we've not been great at um, amplifying these stories or we've, we've uh, the white supremacy culture and the history um, that's been institutionalized for us to learn have not done a great job of um, amplifying and making it visible that the solidarity work has been ongoing for decades and centuries. 
Just a reminder that we are taking your questions. We'll invite John back on in just a few minutes. So if you have questions for our speakers, um, put them through the chat box and we'll try to get them to our speakers. Um, the other side of you know the, the conversation we're talking about prescriptions or solutions is justice for the families. I, I you know heard from Russell before we started the program, the importance of naming the victims that have been impacted. That is incredibly important. But what can we say about, you know, addressing justice for the families of the victims and, and the victims? Um, Russell, why don't we start with you? Um, yeah, you know, I think justice for Asian Americans sometimes isn't the same as a Western individualistic human rights discourse that we use. Um, and I've actually heard, you know, in America, people want punishment. We want our rights restored. We want um, individual justice, basically, that in that transaction between the perpetrator and the victim, something was stolen from the victim. When we talk to our people who are reporting hate, they they don't want. We actually said, "Oh, you know, you have an actionable case here. We could link you to a lawyer if you want." They're they're, they're not wanting that necessarily. They just said. We want a collective voice. We just want to be heard and it to be stopped. We want to hold government accountable, not the individual accountable. And that, actually, that's really remarkable when you think about it. And, you know, in a lot of cases, elderly, now, I don't want to deal with the, the perpetrator. I just want society to be better and to treat everyone better. So that's the first step is that Asians, I think, uh, Asian sense of justice isn't about the individual getting his or her rights back, but it's about a collective justice where um, people take care of each other. The other sense I got is that um, it's not about their rights being stolen. It's about the responsibility that wasn't taken. So rather than being a rights focus, it's responsibility. And so they feel like, yeah, we're not being responsible to take care of each other, to allow seniors to be attacked. You know, something's wrong in the system where people have failed in their human responsibility to our elders, where our society has failed to take care of our kids so that they grow up without any opportunity. And so um, that's where restorative justice as a model comes in, that we're trying to break a cycle of violence and just incarcerating people doesn't necessarily work. It just you know, leads to clearly to higher rates of recidivism. But what we need is to develop empathy and educate people, to hold people accountable, to show the impact and harm that a perpetrator does, and to try to renew or reimagine the relationships between the community. And they're not necessarily perpetrator victims, but they're just community members, neighbors together. And, and then even in an Asian American sense, how we could be family together, right? If we have a family, there's no insiders or outsiders. And so I think um, even re-envisioning just, you know, we're talking a lot about how can we imagine just um, safety? How can we reimagine re belonging? Now we're reimagining justice from an Asian American angle, right? It's corporate. It involves social responsibility. It involves thinking about each other as family. And I think um, that's what Asian Americans have to contribute. Now, as we're like having this racial reckoning, maybe we could really reconceive America. It's um, really inspiring. Council President Bass. Um, I, I, might start with, as we think about what justice means, how do we also focus on the structures and systems? Um, I think that, uh, Russell, you make a good point about individual justice versus collective justice. And so for me, that points to how do we fix the structures and systems that have been operating so they're more just for the Asian community as well as for everyone and again, it's naming those systems and starting by naming those systems. We've named them here, white supremacy. I think that's incredibly important. Um, you know, our economic system, our patriarchal system, our hetero, um, heterosexism, you know, there's a lot of systems of oppression at play. So we can start by naming them, understanding them, and then dismantling them. Um, I think we are trying to, um, as a community, a broad community, whether it's an individual, an activist, an organization, or someone who's a policymaker, a decision maker, I think that 
um, this this year from the pandemic to uh, the killing of George Floyd and the uprising that happened to um, what's happening now with a real you know national recognition around anti-Asian hate, this is an important moment to focus on the systems. Um, so restorative justice, I think, is incredibly important and also understanding how we imagine a new system of safety. And I'll just um, um, offer um, offer this, you know, last night there was a vigil with Angelo Quinto's family. He was the Filipino man, um, 30 years old, who unfortunately died soon after an altercation with police where um, he was knelt on and um, he later he later died. And he was having a mental health crisis. And so one of the things that we are doing in Oakland, recognizing that what happens is we dispatch police for mental health crisis. And so that means an intervention that may be incarceration or medication. It may not be um, a situation of de-escalating, of finding the right services, et cetera. And that can cost someone a life. And so I think we have an opportunity to reimagine new systems. And here in Oakland, we're starting to build a program that will create alternative responses to crises, starting with mental health. And we can we can create alternatives around crises of homelessness, um, domestic disputes, other types of things that we traditionally call police for. And I think for the Asian community, one of the things that I'm really sensitive to because I represent both Chinatown and Little Saigon is language access, cultural appropriateness. Our systems in Oakland, whether it's a city council meeting or a police response, we have very few resources in language to speak to someone who speaks Cantonese, Mandarin, Vietnamese, or any other language, let alone um, being part of that culture and understanding that culture. And so for government, we need to have the appropriate responders, the appropriate helpers who can connect with our very, very diverse community. And Michelle, I, I I know you have made you know some great points. I'd love for you to also add the corporations. Um, you were asked a question, you know, how can corporations play a role in this beyond a statement? So, yes, justice for the families. A question around justice for the families, or what justice reimagined looks like for all of us. Yeah. I'll start with that latter um, question and just an ending thought um, with a story of how my mom was mugged a few years ago and she was carrying and I I try not to blame her for it, but she was carrying her rent money in cash in her bag and uh, she was mugged in the middle of the night and she was punched in the head and thrown to the ground. And it was late at night and she didn't want me to worry. So she didn't call me and she instead called the police. Um, and, uh, what happened afterwards was she, you know, they filed the police report, but beyond that, there was no additional assistance that was given or offered to her. And uh, to this day, it's been a struggle for me to identify accessible mental health services for my mom to access where there is a therapist who speaks Korean, who can understand both, not only the language that she speaks, but the experience of being an immigrant in this country, who um, has not had that sense of belonging or community or safety net. Um, and I think when we're talking about being survivor-centered, we need to look beyond sort of the retributive um, justice model that we have to really thinking about what is it that that person needs and the family needs in order to survive and to be able to heal from this experience. And for my mom, that was, how are we going to pay rent? How are we going to make up for that money that she lost? How are we going to make sure that she gets medical care for the wounds that she's um, been, been inflicted upon on her body? How are we going to heal her psychological and emotional trauma of stepping outside her house and making sure that she is feeling not only um, safe, but that she can actually be joyful in living her life in um, her full sort of abundant joyfulness in this country, right? And I think that journey is so difficult, um, not only because people tend to not pay attention to these um, acts of violence against Asians, but also because there are no systemic safety net that we can rely on beyond being able to call the police or 911. 
right? And uh, I think to this day, I think it's really difficult for me to point people to right resources that are catered towards our elders um, and people who don't speak the language. So I just want to, you know, just double down on what both Russell and uh, Council President Nikki Voss is saying in terms of we need more robust systems of support for our community members. And we need to understand the unique needs that people within our diaspora um, have and continue to have. And in terms of the corporate space, you know, I think there is this um, ongoing conversation around what is the responsibility of the companies and the organizations that, that employ people. Should we be talking about these issues? Should we be talking about politics? And oftentimes people in these corporate spaces forget that what is political is deeply personal for so many marginalized people, right? That we are carrying this racial trauma into the workplace every single day when we are stepping into the workplace. And the fact is that the harm that is being inflicted upon on the streets are being replicated in different forms inside corporate structures. So it's easy for people to look at the hate crimes that are happening and the hate incidents that are happening and the violence that's happening and say, oh, that's not that's that's just in the streets. That's outside of the workplace that's happening. But how but if we really look at the violence that is being inflicted upon our in our communities within the walls of the corporate structure, we can look at the the erasure of Asian histories and struggles in the conversations around diversity, equity and inclusion. You know, the lumping of white and Asian experiences, the representation erasure of how we don't have disaggregated data. And it's so common for us to hear Asians are overrepresented in tech, which is an industry that I'm uh, intimately familiar with, while we don't actually dissect that data to really understand the experiences of marginalized Asian identities in tech. So all that to say is my message to the corporate world has been don't just condemn anti-Asian hate that's going on outside. Look inside to see how you are perpetuating the same forms of violence just in a different um, appearance, right? And that is perpetuating and upholding the model minority myth that is perpetuating the, the systemic disparities and the pay inequities that we're experiencing. So there's a lot of work to be done inside the corporate space um, that I think has not yet begun or people are starting to have conversations around and unpacking that with nuance so that we're no longer just talking about Asian issues during Asian um, Heritage Month, but that it is a part of the DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts that companies have been trying to uh, mobilize around um, since last summer or more recently. Russell, did you want to add anything before we bring John back on for questions from the audience? Yeah, I'm... I just want to chime in that um, we don't necessarily focus on defunding the police, but we're all saying we need to upfund culturally responsive services for our unique communities. And the government hasn't done that. And it's actually failed our communities because you can't treat everybody equally. Um, equal treatment leads to inequity for Asian Americans. We actually because Asian Americans have ampl been amplifying our voices, we actually had a meeting with the Biden administration and with the attorney general's office last week. And they identified all these victim resources that we've never known about it, right? And so there's all this stuff that the government has and they keep on asking, what do you want? And we, we, we have no idea you have all these resources, you know? And, um, and so what we need to do is, is have... Um, government make those resources available and then um, outreach to us and in language. Um, we're working with the Department of Fair Employment of Housing to safeguard our civil rights in stores. You know, that's where we're getting harassed. But, you know, you'd never think the Department of Fair Employment and Housing regulates having a racial slur in a, you know, retail store, but that's who governs. And so we got them to do um, language translated outreach and then um, in meetings. And you could actually get free mediation from DFEH. So there's there are resources that we're, we're not able to access. And I think um, that's where we need to have government a lot more sensitive and a lot more responsive. And then, so what happens is like in our own community, we start providing victim resources, right? So the Coalition for Community Safety and Justice, we're creating our own um, victims fund, right? And because we're closer to the ground, we know like Michelle said, the rent needs, 
the um, the trauma of having to get your door locks fixed, all those little things. And um, so again, the community is both sort of flocking together and taking care of ourselves, but there's so much out there that we need to access. And again, that's why having um, elected officials like council member boss really, really makes a difference. Having a seat at the table, just one seat at the table opens up a lot of doors for us. Let's welcome John Zipper back and uh, he has taken your questions. And so we'll welcome questions from the audience to our speakers. Thanks, Michelle, and thanks to our, our speakers. Uh, we got a lot of questions from our audience, so I'll, I'll just dive right into them. Uh, and one asks about allies. How can allies better show up? And what are some specific actions that they can implement to take to to make AAPI folks feel more supported by the greater community? Uh, so it's really a question for any or all of you. Anyone want to jump in on that? Michelle. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> so in terms of allyship, I always like to start with ourselves. Um, and this includes, you know, really introspecting and reflecting on our own biases and our own narratives. And uh, for folks who are non-Asians, I think it's important for us to, you know, remember to dig deeper than what we um, uh, what we've been trained to do, is, which is to just react right? And to condemn to other people who are causing harm. And I think when it comes to the conversations around anti-Blackness, this is the same conversation that I had with my own communities around, you know, starting with ourselves and digging deeper to understand the biases that we have that are um, perpetuating without our knowing or, you know, unintentionally, intentionally, otherwise, um, how we might be complicit in upholding these harmful and racist rhetorics of modern minority myth, perpetual foreigner, any type of anti-Asian um, um, uh, racism that we might be harboring in ourselves. So I think that's step one. And step two is really interpersonally offering help and support. And like Russell said, many folks in the Asian communities are craving that visibility and validation acknowledgement that this is this what is happening, what is happening to our community right now is real and valid and that we are um, deserving the attention and the, and the respect that we so long um, uh, have not been getting from the national media and the government. So I think it's important for us to individually take that upon ourselves to acknowledge what is happening as valid um, and to not gaslight people that this is not happening, right? Or this is not anti-Asian hate. Um, and I think that erasure of our struggle and our trauma is yet another layer of trauma that we are unpacking. Um, so I think that's an important sort of call out for everyone. And uh, organizationally, right? So when we look at you know, intrapersonal, individual, interpersonal, and organizationally, everybody has a um, responsibility and power to create change inside whatever space that they're a part of, right? Whether that is in your schools or in your workplace, you know, bring up these topics of how we are continuing to not educate ourselves on the history of Asia, anti-Asian racism in this country and the erasure of the solidarity work that has been ongoing and the activism of Asian leaders. I think these are all conversations that need to happen ongoing all year round. So if that's not already happening, make sure that you are part of that conversation and bringing that up. So I think we can all find our own spheres of influence in being able to influence change and to bring up these conversations that are being had um, so that we can not only react to what is happening today, but we can prevent it from happening again in the future. Thank you. Uh, Russell, someone asks, is there a website where we can sign up to help walk individuals to appointments or help with errands, et cetera? Yeah, there's several groups, um, at least locally in the Bay Area, um, Passion in Oakland, right, um, is the group that's hosting neighborhood escort services that um, we think are good. Um, and we don't want necessarily vigilante patrolling or people, you know, on the lookout to racially profile, but we want to be neighbors to each other. So um, that's one such group. And in Oakland, folks can also look up the Oakland Chinatown Coalition on social media. Great. This is a question for all of you, but I'll, I'll start with you, Council President, Council President, excuse me. <clears throat> um, let's see. Given everything that's going on, what has helped each of you process and or heal from the racial trauma and exhaustion that often comes with doing this work? Hmm. I appreciate even hearing that question 
uh, for one thing, um, it recognizes our humanity, which I think is really important. Um, you know, one of the I've, I've had a couple highlights through all of this, including um, the Madison Park uh, API healing and solidarity uh, event. I mean, it was just amazing to see how many people came out and um, how many people just showed up to create a space of healing. Um, that was certainly a highlight, as well as another event that I did, which I co-hosted with our Oakland Cultural Affairs Commission. And uh, that was an event with art and poetry and music um, um, and, and recognizing Black Asian solidarity. So I think um, being able to find spaces that are centered on recognizing our trauma and creating spaces to heal, also spaces where we can celebrate through art and culture and connect on a more human level, um, those are just incredibly important. Great. Professor Joan, your thoughts? Um, yeah, it's been incredibly hard. You know, when I stop and think about dealing with hate on a daily basis, this isn't what I planned to research or wanted to to deal with, but to read how people perceive Asian Americans, how they mistreat our elderly, how um, how hateful America is, is pretty hard to witness. And I, I think about the Black Lives Matter activists, they, they talked a lot about self-care a lot. And I thought, oh, that totally makes sense now as I'm in the sort of midst of all this. And and I think, yeah, what's really buoyed me, again, is that flocking response of Asian Americans, that they've come around. And we've, at Stop AAPI Hate, we have volunteers from all walks of life, data engineers, marketing executives, high school students, you know, and that's what's really encouraging. We had a 13-year-old in San Mateo host a rally. My nieces are cross-stitching you know, just they're using their hobby to raise funds for Stop API Hate. And so now they're my favorite relatives. And so um, I, I just, despite the hate and despite the horror, I think I'm encouraged by um, family and allies that have just even made, you know, those sent little notes or um, said, oh, you do have a place here. You do belong. That's been really helpful, actually. Michelle Kim, how about you? Oh, I echo all of those um, examples of uh, ways that we can heal. I personally have found a lot of um, comfort and healing from community uh, members who have flocked to support me in my own um, processing of what is happening. And the event that um, Council President Vossi mentioned, I was at that event um, and that was just seeing the sea of people, right? From all different um, identities coming together to just show solidarity, that meant a lot to me. Um, and uh, I go to therapy every week. And I think that's a, a luxury and privilege that I don't take lightly. Um, and for me, it's been truly a, it's such an integral part of my own growth and healing um, throughout my work in social justice and keeping myself um, taken care of mentally and emotionally, especially in these moments, but always. Um, so that's been a real um privilege that I get to enjoy because I have the, you know, accessibility, right? I can access these services that so many people cannot. Um, so that's been, you know, a, a practice that I've been tethered to. And then the, the last thing is, um, I think this moment has also been a catalyst for so many Asian folks who have not been plugged in to social justice work who are now sort of waking up, right? For the second time, perhaps in the beginning of the pandemic when the, the um, anti-Asian hate rhetoric was just being spewed all over. Um, and then second time around, I think folks are really um, starting to find their own um, spaces of organizing and being um, encouraged to do so in community. And that's been really um, giving me a lot of hope and energy to continue the work of organizing and being in solidarity with folks. Um, and I hope that continues beyond this crisis. And Michelle Miao, I know you're the, the host and co-host of this, but let me ask that same question to you. How do you deal with this? Oh, I start by crying a lot. I cried, you know, just before this program when Michelle Kim and I 
we're sharing our big wins, you know, uh, my, my wife being approved to, to be here as a permanent resident in, can't even begin to tell you what the experiences was like throughout all of that. And then Michelle sharing a personal story of hers uh, through that process. But also, I agree, you know, the strength in the community. I was there for the Heal and Love event in Oakland. Uh, we, we live in Oakland. And so we go to Chinatown, frequent Chinatown all the time. It actually had already been a thing for us, you know, um, helping seniors in their groceries or just walking a little bit slower and, and letting people pass or taking some time to just enjoy, you know, other human beings. And then equally, I was there when the incident happened with the flare gun, um, you know, woman uh, was injured by a flare gun and I was trapped inside of the chase bank. I was just doing regular normal people things and that happened. And, and I had to, you know, go back and back home and recognize, you know, that is trauma. And so I, I would have to say, you know, to, to heal from all of this is really um, hearing from all of you doing programs like this at the Commonwealth Club and um, and being a part of other folks who see a bigger picture and a solution to all of this rather than perpetuating the trauma over and over and over to other communities. Uh, we probably have time for about one more question. So let me ask this and kind of go big on this one because we've touched on uh, the previous presidential administration before, a question, so besides not being Trump, what can President Biden do to address these issues? Who wants to take that? Stop deporting people. Um, <laughs> abolish ICE. I think there's a lot of stuff that he could do um, to prioritize our communities. Um, and I think there was uh, an initial condemnation of anti-Asian hate. And I think now we're, I'm so glad that some of uh, the Asian leaders are in conversation with the administration to actually enact some policy and systemic changes. Um, and I think there are continuing um, attacks and terrorism that's happening in our community without us even realizing. Like, I, I know that right now there are so many organizers on the front line organizing to stop deportations of not only Asian people, but African immigrants. And I think it's important for us to, again, pay attention to how all of these um, uh, policies that are marginalizing different communities can be our entry point to solidarity work and that, that these are Asian issues too. Um, so I'm hopeful that we can continue to amplify the work of grassroots organizers and frontline workers who are who have been at the forefront of um, uh, fighting for our community alongside others. Yeah, I agree. You know, we have transracial issues that um, we need to address, like deportation, um, mass incarceration. Um, Stop API hate. Um, identified five recommendations for for the Biden administration to pursue, and I guess overall, this racism we're experiencing isn't just hate crimes. It's happening in schools. Where you're not going to you know, criminalize students. It's happening at hospitals, right? It's happening in stores. It's happening um, online. So we need a comprehensive approach to address this racism. And so we're calling for an intra governmental agency task force that actually had a high level to address it, right? So that we have whole government approach to dealing with racism. It, it's a big enough an issue to get that level of attention. And so now it's sort of, um, we've met with the DOJ and they could expand civil rights enforcement, but there's a lot of areas, right? School bullying again, um, providing mental health services for traumatized victims. There's a range that, so we need all of the government's attention um, to address the comprehensive, you know, nature of the racism. So um, that's what we're asking for is high level attention continued. That translates into concrete policies and resources that go to community groups like what Michelle was talking about. And Council President uh, Boss, any advice for the other president? Yeah. <laughs> So I, I think there's a real opportunity to to take this conversation that we're having right now about API hate and violence and the broader conversation we've been having over the past year and really focus on the systems and structures that create conditions for violence, that create conditions of poverty. 
And cities are really on the front line of uh, meeting the need that people have, meeting the most basic needs that people have, especially because there's been a um, dis- di- there's been a divestment and a dismantling of our safety net. And so at the federal level, as we have um, dismantled healthcare, education, housing, and jobs, it's really cities who bear the brunt of that, like literally in our neighborhoods, as well as in trying to address um, all of the outfall from that uh, because of a lack of resources. And so we need to really reinvest in that safety net and in our communities at every single level. And it starts at the federal level, to the state, to the county, to the city level. Um, It's really about a redistribution of our resources, which we have plenty of in this country, and recognizing that will really create um, a much more inclusive society, a a society where more people feel like they belong here. Great. Thank you. Back to you, Michelle. Thank you so much. And thank you to all of you who submitted questions. And I'm sure of it that if you have more questions, you can get in contact with all of our speakers today, Michelle Kim, Russell, Russell Jung, and uh, Council President Boss, um, or, or go through the program again. We covered so much, especially around what you can do starting tomorrow. We have about a minute, minute and a half left. And so I'd love to end with some encouraging words from each of you, our speakers. Um, Encouraging words, especially to our AAPI communities, those who are scared, those who are feeling fear, and and those who are angry and and hoping for a solution starting now. Michelle, we'll begin with you. I think my um, message to folks who are observing and struggling, um, and I think a lot of people who've been messaging me privately are also naming that they're suffering alone. Um, folks who are not already plugged into organizations or communities that are providing ample support. So I think that's the, that's the those are the people that I'm thinking about um, in terms of really wanting to acknowledge right now. And uh, my message would be to really pay attention to your own um, feelings uh, that are coming up in this time of trauma and to not negate or to diminish or gaslight yourself into believing that everything's okay because it's not um, and to seek out support and community because that's been truly my lifeline throughout my life. Um, really being in community with people who are values aligned. So find those people that are out there um, and take care of yourselves. Russell? I think for Asian Americans who sort of are wondering about whether we belong, um, because we don't fit in the white black binary. Um, so. Um, or because people have told us to go back home to a home we've never been to. Um, and I think about people wanting us to go back to normal. And I think I'd like to say, I don't want to go back to normal. I don't want to belong to an America that has mass incarceration, mass detention, mass exclusion of Asians. Um, and so think about whether we want to belong to the way things used to be or how we want to belong to a nation that we want to create. And I think we're in a position to actually recreate, reimagine, re-envision a city, a nation that we want to belong to that includes everybody. And I think um, Asian Americans, because we're on the outside now, we could have that critical gaze on America and say, no, we don't want to go back to normal. We don't want to belong to America as it was. So let's use that outsider position, that that foreigner standpoint as our strength and claim it and make America better. And finally, Council President Boss. Well, I think that because Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders are getting more attention right now, um, maybe perhaps not for all the right reasons, um, in in terms of increased hate and violence, it's also an opportunity to deepen um, the understanding about our history, about our our future, um, so that we can define it. You know, it's really an an exciting moment, despite how difficult things are, of really being able to pivot, to build something new. And so I'd really encourage people to Um, seek the community that Michelle was talking about, but also seek ways to understand our own history, 
um, to celebrate our history. And there are some amazing women that I've been connecting with recently, um, like Dr. Connie Woon, who had an article in Elle that I thought was fantastic. And then here in Oakland, um, Sarah Bell Lin and Momo Chang have been doing some very good reporting about what's happening in Chinatown and getting to some of the nuance. And so seek those folks out to tell um, our stories and also seek out the artists and culture workers to celebrate. And that concludes our program. Thank you all so much for being here with us and listening to this important conversation. Of course, thank you to our speakers. Please support the work that they do. Michelle Kim, Dr. Russell Jung, and Council President Nikki Fortunato-Boss. Thank you to the Commonwealth Club, of course, for providing the space and to our sponsor, Gilead and Kaiser Permanente for supporting independent LGBTQ journalists like myself. John, you have the last words. I'll just second your thanks to everybody. Wish everyone a safe and healthy, calm day. Find out more from us at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Take care, everyone.